2022 is starting off with a bang in the ag policy arena, as cattle producers and the industry work in earnest to settle disputes and voice concerns around price fixing and possible regulation. What policy issues will you need to track this year? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Though the intensity of discussions and debate within the cattle industry have waned slightly due to more favorable prices, pending lawsuits and proposed regulations have kept disputes over price fixing and market distortions top of mind for many producers and lawmakers alike. As organizations like the American Farm Bureau come together for their annual meetings, some surprising dissent surfaced. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton was there to track this story, and in the meantime has been following a broad range of issues, from the latest on E15 and ethanol to trade news and global conflict. Today, we'll dig into a range of topics that are occupying lawmakers and advocates in D.C. and discuss how these issues are likely to develop in the year ahead. We'll talk China, supply chains, climate moves, and carbon pipelines, too, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. From USDA and EPA updates to world trade and climate news, we have a lot to cover today with DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton. Chris, you are tracking some breaking news about Secretary of Agriculture Bill Sachs' announcement on climate smart agriculture. Give us the download on what the update was and what this means as we move forward into policy in 2022. The Agriculture Secretary announced on Monday, the 7th, he was in Jefferson City at uh, Lincoln University, which is a historically black university, announced uh, they were going to spend a billion dollars of money from the Commodity Credit Corp to promote and develop climate smart commodities, which is how he likes to phrase things. And he takes it this interesting spin on the idea, he says, that by putting money into these programs to reduce emissions, verify and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that you will take the commodity being produced, corn, soybeans, chickpeas, whatever, and you will get, there should be a market promotion or a focus on that commodity because that commodity was grown in a way that lowers emissions. And they're going to spend a billion dollars on that. And because they make it as a aspect that 
they're promoting new markets, climate smart commodities, that that gives them uh, justification to use a billion dollars from the Commodity Credit Corp. And this is going to set up an interesting battle with Republicans in the House and Senate Agriculture Committee. I've already gotten a letter emailed from Senator Marshall of Kansas about it, that the USDA is trying to create its own farm bill. Bill Sack, uh, last time he testified before the House Agriculture Committee, Glenn Thompson made that same kind of statement. Poor Robert Bonney, the Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, testifies before the House Act Committee tomorrow, and I, I could just see how this is going to set up. Uh, Republicans are just going to pitch a fit over the idea that uh, Vilsack tapped a billion dollars from CCC funds to, to create these uh, pilot this pilot project, and that will be the battle going forward. Give us some context here, because this is an unprecedented move by Vilsack in the sense that we've never used the CCC fund for specifically for climate or kind of environmental reasons before. But recent administrations have certainly accessed the Commodity Credit Corporation to use those funds for other things. Talk to us a little bit about how maybe lawmakers on different sides of the aisle might be thinking about this pot of money. It's interesting with Vilsack because back in 2010, he used CCC funds for disaster aid that primarily helped Arkansas soybean growers. And at the time, Blanche Lincoln, Senator Blanche Lincoln, was chairwoman of the Senate Agriculture Committee. She was in a tough reelection fight that she ended up losing. That was the year that Democrats lost both the House and the Senate in 2010. And 2011 comes along, and the appropriations bill comes out, and House Republicans basically put a clamp on what how USDA could use CCC funds. They really put a lid. Vilsack couldn't really use CCC for really the, the rest of his administration very limited. And, and as soon as he gets out of office, Sonny Perdue becomes the agriculture secretary. The House Republicans lifted all restrictions on CCC funds. Sonny Perdue then was able to spend, I think the number of something we came up with at the end of the day, I'd have to go look at that GAO report, but it was something like over $20, $23 billion, excuse me, of uh, CCC funds for the market facilitation program. Most un, most ever tapped into the program, they just they ran the spigot like crazy oh, in that whole trade war situation with China. And there was very few complaints about it, except for the fact that um, Senator Stabenow often felt like they weren't consulted. U.S. Uh, Congress wasn't consulted at that time, and that it was the money was unfairly spent heavily towards a few select commodities and not shared equally with all of those affected. So the CCC lately has become a uh, somewhat of a partisan tool. And the past year, Republicans in both the House and Senate Agriculture Committee have told Vilsack multiple times that they don't believe that CCC funds should be allowed to be used for uh, climate smart programs. They've repeated it over and over in different ways. 
And yet here we are, Bill Sack taps it, says it's going to create a market for these programs. And we'll see how that battle is going forward. But once again, if the House flips this year, later this year, you'll see, you'll probably see Republicans in 2023, once again, restrict Bill Sack heavily from using that fund again. A lot of kind of climate news coming out of USDA these days. I want to check in on USDA has made some announcements recently about desired CRP enrollment, cover crop goals. Talk to us a little bit about how Vilsack's agenda in terms of ag policy is shaping up and whether in addition potentially to getting pushback on this CCC spending, do you think there's more that could be uncertain about the way that some of these programs work this year because House Republicans or Senate Republicans might not be interested in these programs. It's a little different kind of setup at the moment because commodity prices are at the, at the moment really strong. And that's going to play a have a big ripple effect over this next year in how the how a farm bill is crafted, let's say. This kind of happened in 2014. We crafted the Farm Bill, or not we, Congress crafted the Farm Bill in 2014 when we had, we were coming off of high commodity prices. And then by the time all of the programs uh, went into effect, commodity prices had fallen down dramatically and the safety net uh, was a lot weaker. And we, we go through that cycle. It seems like every eight to 12 years, we end up in a cycle where we're creating a farm bill right at the moment when when commodity prices are peaking. And when commodity prices are high like that, like they are now, high corn prices, high soybean, high wheat prices, et cetera, producers pay a lot less attention to the farm bill. They are not as engaged. They are not looking at the, at what, what the, at the provisions. They are not looking at what it means. The, their radar screen is not on it nearly as much as when prices are low and they are completely engaged on, on what would happen with the farm bill. Now, because of these higher prices and the high input prices, the American Farm Bureau Federation at their annual meeting last month passed a couple of um, changes in their policy book to promote. They wanted to see higher reference prices in the um, ARC and PLC programs, and they want to see the loan rates increase. The loan rates haven't increased in a very long time for uh, for the commodities. That was a different twist as well. But as these, even as these program, as uh, commodity prices are higher, Farm Bureau did go ahead and push to have higher reference prices because they know that the fall gets a lot harder when uh, when you go from high prices to low prices. So that is a nice transition into I think the other big policy issue that came not only out of the Farm Bureau but that has just been percolating in and around Washington and the rest of the country is around the issue of cattle pricing, cattle price transparency, ongoing for months, perhaps years at this point with the DOJ case, but give us an update on where exactly we are in that conversation, what you might expect to happen in the next couple of months. I think we're all waiting to see uh, what happens with the uh, Senate Agriculture Committee and how they, how the chairwoman and ranking member deal with a bill that has um, a lot of their members already co-signed onto it. Senator Fisher's, I forget the actual name of it, but basically 
cattle price discovery bill. And that bill she mm -hmm. negotiated with Senator Grassley and uh, Senator Tester and a few others would create a regional cash market mandate for meaning the packers would have to buy a certain percentage of their cattle within 14 days of slaughter, negotiated cash trade. Certain parts of the country, the negotiated cash trade is, is fairly strong. Iowa, Minnesota, even in Nebraska somewhat, a few other states. But in a lot of these states with the largest feed yards, Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, there's very little negotiated cash trade. And that was another big policy debate at Farm Bureau because Farm Bureau was very divided among its members about how to move forward on that. Um, Senator Fisher wrote her bill based on Farm Bureau's policy book from last year. And then the Farm Bureau at its annual meeting changes its own policy book to, to basically be opposed to mandated cash trade levels. So the Farm Bureau puts out this really nuanced press release saying, we support Senator Fisher's bill. We just want it changed. And they want basically the entire bill changed, which was interesting. And another kind of thing, the screaming about cattle markets is not as loud at the moment because, again, cattle prices are better. And we're once again in that wave again, stronger cattle prices, hear fewer complaints as vocal and and we go through that same kind of cycle as well so it'd be interesting to see uh, how the senate agriculture committee moves forward particularly uh, given the uh, split among the organizations on that bill now last week things changed a little bit because jbs agreed to settle its aspect it's part of a big class action lawsuit at a federal court in minnesota for 52.5 uh, million. The lawsuit is against JBS, against Tyson, National Beef, and Cargill, quote the big four packers. And it was all about price fixing and uh, controlling the supply of cattle going back to 2015. And JBS settled, and uh, JBS agreed to help the plaintiffs in that case. So it uh, becomes a little more difficult to argue that, well, as the uh, Packers lobby lo argues that this whole situation has been about labor supply and some, quote, uh, black swan events like uh, the Colcom-Tyson fire and the pandemic. In reality, this price-fixing situation was a lot more nuanced than that. And, uh, and you got RCAF over in Montana, those guys jumping up and down, pointing at themselves saying, we, we told you so, we told you so. And so they have been screaming and yelling this stuff for about five or six years now. And uh, as JBS settles, pretty much say, ah, see, we, we said this stuff was going on and nobody believed us and here they, they settle. So that adds another kind of wrinkle, so to speak, to this whole cattle markets debate this class action lawsuit up in Minnesota. And just one last question on that. In terms of what you're going to be looking out for in the next couple of you know weeks and months, you mentioned how Senate Ag is going to deal with the bill that's before them. Of course, how the Senate deals with something is not necessarily how the House deals with something or 
whether or not one of them passes, it does not mean that the other will. And that that is actually the bill that you will get in the end. But yeah, what do you think is likely to happen in the next couple of months? Uh, I think eventually Senator Stabenow will have to have some sort of hearing on the bill and, and determine whether it's going to go forward or not. Senator Grassley and Fisher are going to to push on it. And then you're going to have a whole other aspect is eventually USDA is going to have to come out with its proposed uh, changes and rules to the Packers and Stockyards Act. And this is another situation that goes back 12 years. It goes back to the 2008 Farm Bill. Vilsack, in his first eight years as USDA secretary, they spent eight years basically writing the rules on the Packers and Stockyards Act. And as he was walking out the door, they said, here's our final rule. And of course, the first thing that Sonny Perdue and the Trump administration did was freeze that rule. And then they spent four years under uh, Perdue writing a whole different set of rules. And then literally as Purdue was walking out the door in December of uh, 2020, they put out their final rule. The Biden administration puts a freeze on that rule and starts over. So the, this rewrite of trying to find uh, the sweet spot in, in improving, let's say, improving how the producers are treated under the Packers and Stockyards Act that goes back all the way back to 2008, at least. And and now the Biden administration, you know, President Biden himself, very first thing he did in January was hold this meeting with uh, producers about all of this stuff. And, and one of the things they thumped their chest about is writing new Packers and Stockyards Act rules. Well, how long is that going to take and and how far is that going to get? Yeah, we that sort of very much up in there as well. Big questions, especially given that there are other, perhaps more pressing issues. Things that come to mind include the U.S.'s relationship with China, particularly with trade, obviously a big deal in terms of maintaining the price situation that we have. But I'm curious also how the situation in Ukraine right now is taking up a lot of oxygen on Capitol Hill, I'm sure. And I think there are implications there also for what happens with China. So I'm curious just how the global picture is fitting into our current policy outlook for 2022 in agriculture. We really don't know how to dance with, with China right now. And we're very much waiting to see. Vilsack made some very strong comments that China showed up, ended up about $19 billion short in its commitments of agricultural purchases and should be buying more. The market somewhat is dictating because of other things going on that soybean prices are going up, things of that nature. Maybe China will end up having to buy more, but China is just coming back from its its New Year holiday, more or less. And you've got the Olympics going on. We stopped them in the Olympics because of human rights concerns. That it was a House passed a bill last week, the Competes Act, that... Um, Republicans say, was it nearly strong enough against China, while Democrats say it does stuff in, in the bill to uh, uh, make us less reliant on China. And stuck in the middle is the U.S. trade representative, who she is very procedural in, in what she does. She's not out there trying to, it, 
trying to cut big deals or anything like that. It's very unclear moving forward just what exactly our policy is going to be when it comes to trade negotiations with China because there are, as you said, so many political things up in the air. China has become much more vocal and forceful about Taiwan, while at the same time Russia has become militant and ready to go to war over Ukraine. And it seems like both countries are have gotten together and determined to press these issues at the same exact time, believing that the United States is in kind of a weak position to, to do anything about either one of those situations. As far as trade is concerned, everybody has made their complaints known. Agricultural groups have. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has made some, raised some concerns, but we're stuck in uh, low gear at the moment when it comes to trade talks and negotiations. And I just don't see that moving forward very, very aggressively anytime soon. I'm curious as a follow-up to that about, I think the supply chain issues, how that has affected things like fertilizer prices, but also equipment and technology and so many sectors that are involved with agriculture. Is there talk on Capitol Hill or at USDA about what the future of the supply chain issues might be or whether there's interest in making legislation or acting somehow to make that a little less of a challenging situation? They have tried uh, various things to um, to loosen up some of the supply chain challenges. We really haven't heard quite as much in the past maybe week or two about the port situation. The um, USDA made an announcement that really goes back to some talks they did in December with the Port of Oakland to try to... Uh, make it easier for agricultural exports to get out of Oakland rather than Long Beach or uh, L.A. But we still have kind of the, the same kind of situation with empty containers that are leaving ports and going to back to Asia. I think maybe some of that obviously slowed down a little bit because of the the Chinese uh, New Year holiday, that sort of thing. But we'll see this whether how much this ramps back up. But we're still stuck with the fact that uh, we're short on truck drivers. And just today, a rule came into effect today with the Federal Motor uh, Carrier Administration that makes it more or less just a little tougher to get a CDL license than it was before. The trucking industry more or less had said they've known about this rule coming for at least a decade. It was supposed to go into effect two years ago, and it got pushed back. But it finally went into effect today, February 7th, and has a little more, you got to have a little more specific training to get before you can get your CLD, uh, CDL. So that affects farmers and others in different ways. It just makes it, you're going to have to pay, you're going to have a little more requirements and standards before you can get into um, 18-wheeler. But that creates a little more uncertainty when we've had when we're supposed to be about eighty thousand excuse me about eighty thousand truckers short of where we need to be as it is already so moving forward with um, it might help the truckers out though and I might be raising the pay for truckers uh, for everybody if they're already short of truckers and they make the uh, standards for getting into the industry just a little bit tougher than they were before so we'll have to see.
I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about ethanol and E15, uh, a rule that we talked about a lot there for a while, a couple of years ago, and has largely fallen by the wayside as people focus more on just getting volumes and making a lot of the focus went to the idea of small refinery waivers. Talk to us a little bit about where the Biden administration is on ethanol and what, you know, do you expect to hear E15 news in 2022? I think uh, most of the news on E15 is coming out at the state levels. Iowa is just about ready to finally pass a bill, which seems incredibly logical. Iowa produces 29% of the nation's ethanol and didn't even have its own E15 standards. So they finally kicked in. And they seem like they're going to have a bill that the governor will sign fairly soon. And you're seeing that push maybe in a few other states that are large uh, ethanol producing states as well. But on the federal level, at the moment, I don't hear anything from Administrator Regan when it comes to E15. Maybe we'll hear something from him. He's scheduled to speak um, at the National Ethanol Conference. We'll see if he addresses that topic. Right now, the ethanol groups are much more focused at the moment just on the annual, semi-annual somewhat, so to speak, mandated blend volumes under the renewable fuel standard. We went through nearly two years without any specific volume obligations for the refiners that were spelled out in the rules. They came back with a retroactive rule, and they came back with some new rules for 21 and 22. And the administration and the ethanol groups are still working on those. I think most of the comments actually had to be in by Friday for the proposed rules. So we'll see if there are any changes to that. The ethanol groups mainly are concerned about, they felt like EPA dialed back on 2020, go back two years now, on, on what the 2020 standard was supposed to be and that it didn't actually account for all of the actual ethanol used to 2020. You really get into the weeds with these ethanol groups and, and the battles with EPA over blend volumes uh, that the refiners require. Now, the, the good thing that this happened with the Biden administration so far when it comes to ethanol is that they have rejected like 65 waiver requests from refiners. If you remember, the uh, Trump administration approved one year, like 82 of those requests, and the ethanol industry guys lost their minds over that. In one sense, on the one hand, maybe the standard level for 2020, 2021 might not be exactly what they want it to be. But on the, on the other hand, they're not seeing their volume levels being undercut by the administration signing off on all of these waiver requests. It was a glass half full or a glass half empty, so to speak. But the administration is much more focused on pushing and getting the auto industry to raise cafe standards and approve and get more, sell more electric vehicles. That's a, a focus that they have. And the ethanol industry needs to find another uh, sweet spot. I think uh, one aspect of that is, is aviation fuel. Bill Sack talks about this, I think, just about every chance he can to, to be the advocate for ethanol in the, in the administration, but you're not going to fly a 737 uh, on electric battery power alone. You're going to have liquid fuel, and the aviation industry internationally is under a lot of pressure to reduce its emissions. 
the way to do that is to, with liquid fuels, is to have ethanol and biodiesel blended in higher rates through what they call sustainable aviation fuels. And that's a, that's a huge potential uh, future market for the ethanol industry. Bill Sack quotes 36 billion gallons. If they got half of that, that would be a uh, tremendous uh, boost for, for biofuels and a second tier market for them going forward over the next decade. I want to use what you mentioned at the beginning, some of this legislation happening at the state level as a springboard to talk about another interesting kind of emerging state issue around carbon pipelines and how that's happening, particularly in the Midwest. Talk to us a little bit about what's going on there and how folks should be paying attention to that issue. This uh, primarily, the carbon pipelines primarily affect Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, probably the the crux of it there. And, and it really centers primarily, though, on Iowa. You've got at least three big pipeline projects proposed that run all over the map in Iowa. I haven't counted up all of the counties that would be affected, but in some cases, these the pipelines literally run across each other, beside each other, etc., because you have all of these ethanol plants, more than 40 of them in Iowa, 29 of them in Nebraska, and they all signed up with different pipelines. So you've got this crisscross of pipeline proposals, and and you've got this groundswell of pushback from, from property owners who don't want to see these pipelines come across. Every state has different laws. In Iowa, for instance, a pipeline proposal goes through the Iowa Utilities Board, and they're required to have a, at least one meeting in every single county. Uh, so if a company wants to put a pipeline that goes across 30 counties in Iowa, they've got to have a meeting in every single county that they do that. So the Iowa Utilities Board over the past year or so has done practically 90 meetings, more or less, between Summit Pipeline and Navigator Pipeline. Now, that differs from Nebraska, where there is really no law in Nebraska or body, regulatory body, to oversee carbon pipelines. There's no authority. But then they also, because of that, there's also no ability for those pipelines to have eminent domain like they can in Iowa. So I was just at a meeting last week in New York, Nebraska, one of the three or four that some people held who are opponents concerned about the pipelines, don't want to see them come through, and they um, were laying the, uh, the law of the land in, in the state there. South Dakota has own, its own rules, so does North Dakota, Illinois as well. It uh, really varies from state to state, but there's, because of the federal tax credit, the Q45 tax credit, as it's called, carbon sequestration tax credit, there is a tremendous amount of money available that these pipelines think they can get. One of the pipeline proposals would cost like $4.5 billion to build. If you do the math on the tax credits, they think they would get like $7.2 billion in 12 years just in the tax credit. That doesn't include maybe getting a cut or a premium of, quote, low-carbon fuel that maybe, count, that maybe the ethanol plants sell to California or some other states or something like that. 
And so the, the carbon pipeline thing is really begun to take off, even though nobody has, has dug a shovel yet in some of these states. No pipeline has been laid, but the plans are out there. And the pipelines are under a deadline. They need to have these pipelines really starting to move forward and, and actually sequestering carbon by 2026 to get these tax credits. So they're under a deadline. They need to move quickly to, to do that. But the opposition is, um, is moving forward. So the difference between that and maybe an oil pipeline is the opponents of, of these pipelines, they know what the deadline is. They know that if they can grind it to a halt in different ways, shape, or form by 2026, that these pipelines uh, won't come to fruition. This is going to be a... a bigger topic going forward with because it's a multi-state projects there's a lot of money involved and the opposition is is growing to them i just have one more quick question and hopefully maybe this is a hopeful one talk to us about the biden administration and and the house and the senate did manage to pass an infrastructure bill recently and some of that money is destined for rural america or for agricultural kind of related or connected investments. Talk to us a little bit about where people might be seeing some of that money, you know, flow into their areas. In rural areas, you're going to see, you're going to see water, first of all, in a lot of ways, shape and form. Small towns that have had a hard time expanding water lines needed the money, particularly across the country. Small towns have huge problems with uh, wastewater trying to get meet maybe higher standards or expand their facilities because of growth or whatever. There's a lot of money that's going to flow through USDA for those type of things. USDA just within the last month also released, I think it was, I want to say about a billion dollars that was just mainly tied into the electrical grid in different ways. Loans and grants for electrical expansion some of that tied into broadband. Broadband is really, uh, really the big deal in rural America in terms of some of this. There's a, a great deal of money that $65 billion, there. That's the number that was off the top of my head. It was in that bill for a broadband expansion around the country. One of the things I, I read about last summer, though, in small towns, strapped for money. They have a tight budgets. There's all this money out there, federal money that's going all everywhere. You don't have anybody maybe who knows how to write a grant. You don't have people who write grant proposals. That that those kind of issues are coming up in in different areas. The money is out there uh, right now for for various kinds of infrastructure, roads and bridges, etc. The state, the counties can handle that sort of thing. But if you're a small town somewhere in Oklahoma or New Mexico or someplace like that, and you desperately need to expand broadband, but you don't have anybody who really has any kind of a skill set when it comes to grant writing, you may very well lose out when it comes to uh, getting funds from USDA compared to somebody else. So that is a, uh, a skill that is really needed right now. You know, you same with wastewater management or in the, a lot of Western states, they're going to be looking to build reservoirs and conveyance for irrigation for agriculture. There's about $55 billion that was, quote, kind of climate-related in that bill that is tied into those kind of water projects. 
probably more than any time in the past 50 years, there is a lot of money that is out there federal-wise for, for infrastructure projects, but you also got to be savvy enough to be able to go get it. You can read more of Chris's extended policy coverage and catch up on up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag policy at dtnpf.com or with the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Chris Clayton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.